Those who do not have the power over the story that dominates their lives, the power to retell it, rethink it, deconstruct it, joke about it, and change it as times change, truly are powerless because they cannot think new thoughts. True power lies with those who can control their own story. You are the story that you tell yourselves. For, for heritage to uh, have value, for heritage to matter, you have to have a community there that celebrates it and connects to it. It's easy to get um, stuck in the detail and in the process and, and forget that at the end of the day, these things, although they're from the past, they're kind of living and they're carried through to the present and then on to the future, hopefully, if we do our jobs right. Our heritage has shaped who we are as a people and a place today. In this series, we celebrate the stories of Auckland, the Pacific, and beyond. I'm Mark Gosper, and this is the Heritage Talks podcast. Kia ora koutou and welcome back. As part of our Family History Month offering, today's kōrero features historian-turned-television genealogist Dr Nick Barrett, who shares his behind-the-scenes experience working on the popular Who Do You Think You Are? series. Alongside the apparent ease of internet research, has grown the expectation that the information we seek will also be right at our fingertips. It may well be, advises Barrett, but to get the real rewards, we need to be an active participant in our own journey of discovery. Haramai titahi ahoa. Thank you so much for the warm welcome. It's a great pleasure to be here. What I want to do is to share some of the stories around a TV show that you might have heard of called Who Do You Think You Are? Um, it started off in the UK back in 2004, and my involvement began two years earlier when we first started kicking around the idea for a show that was not about genealogy. And that's a really key point I want to make because it started out as how do we tell stories about social history mainly focused on the British Isles, but going around the world from 1850 to the present day. That's a really important point because it's morphed into something completely different and it has a huge impact on the way we now consider the way we research our family history and our genealogy, of course, two very different but connected styles of research. And what the show, I think, taught us very early on is that you only need one hour to research your history all the way back <laughs> to the 18th century, if, like our current, possibly short-lived Prime Minister Boris Johnson, you automatically connect to royalty on his side, illegitimacy to George II. It made the process look ridiculously easy. All the more so when you think that the show first came out in 2004, when really there weren't that many data sets available on the internet. And I think, as Cindy has shown so brilliantly, the complexity has grown up from that point onwards. There are obviously many websites presenting information, but the first major data set by Family Search came out a few years before we got started. In the UK, the major data set release that we still think about was the 1901 census that went live in 2002, then promptly went off the air because of a whole range of technical issues, mainly because of the popularity with which people saw this incredible new way of accessing data about our ancestors. But I think one of the greatest impacts that Who Do You Think You Are had is the way family history is perceived as a really mainstream historical research discipline. 
because back in the day, it wasn't. One of the early reviewers of Who Do You Think You Are called it, and I quote, self-indulgent navel-gazing. <laughs> and that was mainly because the media portrayed historians as being academics presenting lectures on bigger picture history. And that genealogy was a bit of a hobby or a pastime, something you did when you reached retirement age to while away the hours so you can reconnect with your ancestors before you meet them again in another life. <laughs> that was the perception. And I must admit, I came from that camp. My doctorate is not in genealogy or family history. It's in medieval history, medieval English history. Actually, it's medieval state finance and fiscal history. And when you cut down even further, my PhD was to spend three years of my life editing one document. Now, to be fair, this document was six foot long, written in medieval Latin shorthand. And it was a series of accounts compiled county by county showing where all the royal revenue came from in 1225, as we know, a key year when Magna Carta was finally embedded in... I'm not doing that talk, don't worry. <laughs> That might be later on, but the point is, I viewed this document as a great source for financial data and the way the exchequer, the um, government department that audited money, worked. But of course now I've been converted to genealogy, it's stuffed full of thousands of individual names. So even back then I was already drawn to name-rich documents without even knowing. The point there, I think, is that this excitement, this passion drives us forward, often without that academic pursuit of a qualification. Now, of course, you can become qualified in a whole range of genealogical studies. But back then, it was seen as this sort of pastime. But that is to ignore the second thing I noticed, and that is the, the, the level of sophistication we bring to our research. Not just all of the complexities that the internet has thrown up, which in many ways I think deserves a PhD in its own right to get to the bottom of all of that, but also the way back in 2002, three, four, we had to approach family history without many of these fantastic databases and data sets that support them. And that was going into archives and libraries and finding out where the records might be stored. But before we did any of that, we had to interrogate our own family knowledge, those personal archives that are unique to us, which may be in our possession or the extended family, but give us that richness of information. Photographs, which of course, as you know, when we take the album out, I've got all of the biographical details written on the back. <laughs> Absolutely not. Letters, journals, diaries, Bibles. Cindy's listed a whole load of the analog records, if we now put it in more modern parlance, that you will have that will probably be found nowhere else, or at least you'll have half of that information if you're looking at letters and correspondence. And then we have to interview our relatives who tell us stories passed down through the ages, which are always true. All of the names that we gather, which are always true. It was astonishing how much of these vital pieces of information when we started working with our celebrities weren't necessarily accurate. Most of our celebrity dates of birth that they provided us to get started with weren't true. <laughs> they were quite often much older than they claimed to be in their biographies. So that was a really important lesson. But that's something we need to do as researchers. We challenge the evidence that we've got. So we gather the information from the family archive, from interviewing. Then we start to set out what we think we know in our first ever family trees back in the day on paper, or wallpaper if you had a really long family tree. 
And then we go searching for the clues. We start to build or verify information about what we know through using civil registration records, so birth, marriage, death in England and Wales going back to 1837. And then starting to complement that with some of the more granular information from the decennial census records. We were looking forward, I think, to the 1921 census to be released, but back then the latest set of records was 1901. And then we start to go even further back into some of the very precise local material in archives and libraries scattered around the country. So it's a real journey that we go on. And that is sophisticated. And I think that's also something else that we need to bear in mind. It's not just about finding the people, it's putting them back into their historical context. So we talk about family history and local history as though they're completely separate things. Of course they're not. What use is a person without the place in which they lived? What use is a place without the people that made it a home and a community? And so when we look at the census records, or indeed many of those certificates, we look for the address. We might want to trace the ancestral home to find out whether it's still standing, or how the area changed by looking at cartographic information, or finding out how industry moved in or out of an area to explain why people moved around. We superimpose contemporary transport networks to see why they were moving as well. So what we're doing is building up a profile that goes beyond the biographical information that perhaps we started with. We're looking at family history, yes, but also social history, local history, house history. We're looking at national and international events so that we can contextualise why people went away. If you're looking at British history, various routes why people would go away from a census of 10, 20, 30 years. We've talked about transportation, but of course there were many wars being fought. As colonies and armies spread around the world, people would sign up, leave their village, escape a life of poverty, and then appear in all sorts of exotic places. This is all part of our family story. And this is all the sort of information that is often excluded from the academic TV show. And that's where Who Do You Think You Are comes in. But as I said, it wasn't really meant to be like that. And television has this weird way of warping things. So, of course, it doesn't take an hour to research your family tree. Weeks, months, years, we tend to spend three to six months researching a case study, finding the best stories, turning them into a one-hour programme. But you can go on for decades, as I'm sure many of you would know only too well. But also, it distorts the ease of the process. How many times have we shouted at the TV screen when the presenter comes in and appears as if by magic in the repository shelves, getting the right book off the shelf, <laughs> and it magically opens at the right page? How many weeks of searching before you get to that point? But also, frustratingly, wouldn't it be great as if by magic the local historian appears at your elbow to talk you through the document and all the things? It's not like that. Of course it's not like that. Even the archives themselves get portrayed in a particular way. Now, I've done a bit of filming. and One of my first jobs was working for the BBC, and they just could not get their heads around what the archives were. It took me a week to get permission to leave my desk to go to the archives. And it took an incredible amount of fuss and form filling, and then I realised that they meant the BBC archives, <laughs> the film archives and sound archives, where I'm not quite sure whether they thought I would find some footage of this 16th century house being constructed or whatever, but <laughs> there was that disconnect, because that's the media they work in, moving image, sound, not the richness of the written record that lies outside. And that's often shown in the way the filming process takes place in archives and libraries. They assume 
that these ancient records are stored in ancient monastic buildings or the sort of library you might see in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series at Hogwarts, wood panelled with probably candlelight lit to see all these things. And of course, it's nothing like that. You come into a brightly lit room and the film crews are really upset. So the first thing they often do is turn out the lights and get the old books and make it look like a dusty archive. <laughs> and we as a community have spent time in these places. And we will find an awful lot more offline even now than online. If, particularly if you want to look at that base pyramid. So we had that wonderful example of the iceberg. And something like 20 to 25 percent of historic records are becoming digitized, but particularly the name rich ones. But the ones that aren't, that we look at for who do you think you are, that's why it takes so long, even today with all the technology and the web resources, to research an episode. Because to make the stories come to life, to make the people come to life, we have to do all of that wonderful local research. But all that was still ahead of us. All of that really, I think, goes to the heart of how and why Who Do You Think You Are changed from 10 original episodes, each episode having one theme, looking at an aspect of British social history, as I said, going back to about 1850. And in 2002-03, when the idea was first mooted, it was seen as a really novel thing to have a celebrity presenting the show, as opposed to the academic top-down historian. This was meant to be the bottom-up view, and they thought that the celebrity would be a really neat guide, and they would use their ancestors who would pop up, like illustrations, to show what that aspect of social history meant to them. The whole emotional journey came much later, and we'll come back to that, I think. But back then, this was seen as a really good way of connecting with the audience rather than lecturing at the audience. But of course, they weren't quite sure how to get that level of intimacy and the stories, particularly stories that segued into one theme. So they started by drawing up a shortlist. I say a shortlist, there were 150 names on that list. And before you think they wasted thousands of pounds on research, Many of those names are now being used, but we found that it was very hard to get people to do the show, particularly when we started to explain the artificial conceit we wanted to wrap around the program to make it feel a bit like Time Team, that sense of discovery as you went through. And that was the first thing that we were adamant about. We were going to tell nothing about what we'd found during the research. Everything these celebrities find out on their journeys is shown to them for the first time. Now, you get the occasional reaction shot, shot a second time, but they know absolutely nothing other than what they take into the process. We had to disappoint several people we talked to because they knew too much. The only time we've ever shown people research in advance was when we were trying to get the star name from series one interested in signing a contract to do the show. And that was Jeremy Clarkson who rose to fame presenting Top Gear. I guess uh, most of you have heard of his exploits, which is why he's now on Amazon presenting the Grand Tour. Um, Jeremy loved the idea, but wasn't that thrilled about some of the co-stars, and I won't name them, that he was meant to be working with. So we thought, let's impress him. He loves detail. So we got this family tree we'd researched. He was our first case study. Huge, great thing. Think back to that roll of wallpaper stretching across a desk. And we filmed him as we walked him along the family tree, just trying to pique his interest. So we had names and dates and a little bit of information about each person. So we sadly gravitated to the male line, as he was wont to do, and focused on the Clarksons. And he looked at them 
Jeremy Clarkson, da, 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 Thomas Clarkson. Oh, they go back a long way. They look like genetic landfill. They're boring. Okay, we're in trouble here. And then he picked on another line, the Smethursts. Smethursts, what did they do? Oh, they were architects. That's a bit dull. Apologies to any architects in the room. Um, he wasn't interested in them. We got to a line of miners. And he said to us, well, that means you're going to take me to a coal mine and take me underground, and I don't want to do that. And, that's... and we were in real trouble. Every single line that he looked at was dull or boring. He wasn't interested in the social history. Until we got to the very far line on the maternal family tree. And he just glimpsed a name. And we were filming in his kitchen. And that name was Kilner. And he looked up and saw a Kilner jar and thought, I wonder if I'm related to them. There must be millions of pounds somewhere for me to find. <laughs> so it became the search for Jeremy's missing millions. And we found them. We found the family. There was a link. And we found that generation after generation, the money had been frittered away by successive owners of the business who spent more time on fast cars and fast women, and the money went. <laughs> Poor Jeremy, he was most upset. But the real reason that people didn't want to do the show was the process. So we'd start with a bit of background research just to check out which of those 10 lines our 150 people might fit in. So biographies, talking to agents, what we know about the celebs. So we tried to categorize them so we'd have a pretty good chance of filling one of our 10 themes. Then we would sit down with them and talk to them about what they know. And more importantly, who in the family might have done some research already? Who could we talk to? And they were OK with that up to a point. And then we said, OK, well, as soon as we start talking to your family, you can't talk to them about the process. They're going to be sworn to secrecy. We'll be sharing information with them, but not with you. And they got real cold feet about that. You know, in the early days, this was seen as a little bit tricky for them to come to. Nowadays, people come up and say, oh, come, we'll be on the show, please. We want to find out next week what we're going to do. <laughs> Takes a bit longer. But they were a bit nervous about exposing their family to the TV process. So a lot of them said no at that point. Those that continued were then confronted with the next barrier. We were setting them up as the presenter of a program. And quite naturally, they were saying, OK, so when do we see the script? When do I rehearse my words? When do I learn what I'm doing? Now, again, having done a bit of front of camera work, the one thing that you don't see is the script tucked down the back of my trousers, which I whip out between takes to learn my lines so it sounds like I'm ad-libbing. <laughs> yeah. We have a script, obviously. We spend months working on the script with all sorts of possibilities about how the celebrity might react as to which branch we go down next. They don't get to see it. It's locked in the production car or it's left with the editor or the director. They don't know where we're taking them because of that need to keep things secret and surprise. So that upset most of them. And those that were left with us stayed with it, probably just to humor us, um, and said, OK, well, that's fine, that's fine. I, I want to obviously make a good impression. At least I can do the voiceover in the edit suite. Now, TV programs are broken down into 30-second bite-sized chunks of film. 30 seconds apparently is your audience attention span before you go channel hopping if there's something more complicated than that. So I don't know whether you've noticed, you see the voiceover, which is the bridge between each of those segments. You were told what you have just seen. You were told what it is you're about to see. You were then given a narrative about what it is you're seeing, which leads you to what you're going to see next. So that's the commentary and the voiceover to stitch these 30-second chunks together to make the program. And usually it's the presenter who does the voiceover. But in this case, 
They weren't allowed in the edit suites, and we employed a voiceover artist to keep it neutral. The first time they saw the film was when it was released, because we wanted to keep that sense of journey and mystery. We knew what we were trying to do, and we didn't want them interfering. So, let's recap. A new program that's never been done before, where we talk to their family but not to the presenter. The presenter doesn't have a script, and the presenter isn't allowed in the edit suite. We've, written, we've ripped up the rule book of how to make a TV show. Out of those 150 names, we were left with 20. So we had to get 20 down to 10. Very little margin for error, particularly when we had to stick to this one theme per program. These days, it meanders according to what the celebrity is interested in, and you go all around the family tree, or you keep it quite tight to one or two generations. The format has gone. But back then, the format was rigid. And we nearly lost some great shows because we couldn't find that final part that would adhere to the theme. Um, that was the problem. We had to keep these themes intact. At least that was the plan. That was the plan. And there is someone that I still refer to in many ways as the godfather of modern media genealogy. Um, the first person that really challenged us to think of a different way of telling these stories. And it's a chap that you may or may not have heard of called Bill Oddy. <laughs> okay, for those who don't know, um, Bill Oddy has had a really interesting TV career. He started off in a comedy troupe called The Goodies, very slapstick, and then became an ornithologist and started Springwatch. So he's had a fairly good career. But his story was all about the Industrial Revolution. And particularly, he was looking at a career and a background of cotton industry, so in the factories. And just to get some background, we went back to the same sort of period, 1780s, and the Oddies lived in Yorkshire in the north, and they were involved in tenant farming, small holdings, bits of land, just enough to keep yourself going, but they supplemented it with weaving on the side. And then when they noticed something strange going across the border, I don't mean Scotland, I mean Lancashire, the border that you dare not cross if you come from Yorkshire. And they noticed these new things called factories appearing in the mill towns, and they crept across at the dead of night, I suspect, and signed up. And because they came in early enough, they rose through the ranks to effectively middle management, and all was well. And so they were in the emerging mill towns of Blackburn and Darwin. Until the 1860s, when the market crashed because of events halfway around the world, this interconnectedness of genealogy and global history. Because, of course, what's happening over there was the US Civil War. And the blockade of southern ports stopped the raw cotton moving across the Atlantic into the mills. So those that hadn't stockpiled closed. And the working hands were laid off in their thousands, facing unemployment and therefore starvation. There was no welfare state to support them. Hence the rise of the cooperative movement to set up soup kitchens to feed them. Something I think modern Britain is heading back to at the moment. I won't talk about the thing that we're doing called Brexit. We'll leave that to another day. So they faced a tough decision. Stay and live on charity or move and hope to find a mill that was still hiring. And they ended up in Rochdale, working part-time because a number of mills had stockpiled seeing what was going to happen. So they started right at the bottom. That was our story. Successive generations of Oddies having all of this hardship. Bill didn't want to know about any of this. He wanted to know about his mother, one generation back. Because he didn't really understand his mum. He didn't understand what had happened 
to her and his own childhood because she had spent a lot of her time in hospital, particularly the asylum, the local asylum, where she had been treated for various mental health problems. And this had been a constant through his life. In fact, he blamed some of her absences and some of her challenges on his own difficulties. And he wanted to know why. That was all. Why? What had happened? So we investigated and we found what we thought was a trigger event. Now, one of the great criticisms of the early shows of Who Do You Think You Are was the brown paper envelope, <laughs> whereby the celebrity is presented with their findings in a van envelope and out it comes. And so we had people up and down the country going into archives saying, oh, can I have my family tree in a brown envelope like Bill Oddie had? <laughs> anyway, I did criticise it when it was being done, but I was overlooked. What do I know? I'm only a historical researcher. Um, he was sat in a car outside a registry office, and he was given an envelope with three bits of paper. And the first was his parents' marriage certificate. Big deal, he knows all about that. The second was his older sister's birth certificate, which was a bit of a shock, because he was the oldest child in the family. And the third explained why it was his sister's death certificate five days later. And that awoke a suppressed memory about something that had happened that was never talked about, that was linked to his mum going into hospital. And then he started asking some older relatives who could remember. And the story started to tumble out. He had indeed had an older sister. She did indeed die tragically five days later. Caught death. But somehow the family sort of blamed his mum. She was blameless. So we have a new mum with the trauma of a young death. And today we would provide support and counselling, possibly some medication. Back then, it was diagnosed as a form of mental illness, and she was put into an asylum. This was the 50s, so electric shock therapy was introduced as a means of trying to treat her, which, of course, made the situation worse. She came out, but she was then vulnerable and subject to depression. So we ended up with a very dark story, which then launched his investigation further into the family tree. So we looked at all the Oddie ancestors, but the key thing was this one-generation story that had been suppressed. And it was very uncomfortable, but it was challenging viewing. And it really touched a chord with the audience. This wasn't comfy armchair viewing or top-down historical view. This was something that affected people in the audience. We know this because throughout the rest of the week, thousands of people hit the BBC uh, phone lines and contacted archives and hospitals. Where do we find these records? This is something that's affected us. This is really important that we talk about it. Now, if you'd have gone to the BBC and said, we've got a great idea for a TV show, we're going to spend an hour with Bill Oddie talking about his mum's mental illness. It would not have got commissioned. But it really made them sit up and take notice of interactive television, not the red button thing that they created where you could go onto various extra films and websites, but the fact that people were now turning off their TVs and going online and going into archives and trying to find stuff out themselves. They could not ignore what we do. But more importantly, the relevance of what we do. This was not self-indulgent navel-gazing. This was affecting and changing people's lives, opening up conversations, helping find closure or understanding, helping get better treatment, helping pass on warnings to future generations. And that, I think, is where Bill was coming from when he said, I think, probably one of the most profound things in the show's history. He's sitting on a train coming back from the whole journey, and he's asked by the director to reflect on what he's learned. And he says, I wish I knew then what I know now, because I could have made a difference. Isn't that an interesting thought? 
that it isn't just something we do. Actually, we can learn from the past and we can pass that on to the present. It's a really valid point, which I think is echoed through in the way that we changed the way we approached our second series. And it was much more of an emotional journey. And that has influenced the way people approach genealogy. And this is where we come back to some of what Cindy was talking around in the first talk. Because we are now encouraged to go online because of the ease of access to all of this content without the due warnings and health notices about what you're likely to find and the intricacy of the research that's required. As we heard, it's tremendously complicated now, but there's some fantastic material out there. Rewind to 2003, 4, 5 in the early days when these data sets were first appearing. And those assumptions were even more the case that you're going to find everything that you want. And people were really quite surprised that you couldn't find everything online or that there might be errors. The 1901 census was a really good lesson in point because a lot of people were shocked to find they were related to the Ditto family when they went through the transcriptions. <laughs> Transcribe what you see. I won't even say what prison officers were called. The records were transcribed by prisoners. Um, I'll leave the rest to your imagination. <laughs> Quite a few transcription errors, deliberate or otherwise, creeping in there. But of course, you're not going to get that richness of record unless you do go local. So we've got this really strange position now, this paradox almost, where the who do you think you are experience, this exposure to the TV show, says it's a really emotional journey, and you have to go to archives, and you need to go to the places. But to do that, you go into one of these websites, Ancestry, Find My Past, Family Search, are the ones that people are directed to, where you're doing a particular style of genealogy, which is much more around connectivity and name gathering, and you're not really challenging the evidence or the depth of information that is there. So a lot of people who have grown up in the Who Do You Think You Are era are missing a trick. They're also not being pointed towards family history societies or indeed local history societies where the on-the-ground expertise lies. And this is imperiling the existence of the very archives and libraries that store the records. It's a valid point that people need to come in to get access to experience and expertise, but also those data sets that are not online, that you will not find on Ancestry, even if Ancestry is now increasingly pointing you towards them. So there's this real risk that we're going to lose the passion, the expertise, but also that connection with the past because of this digital revolution we're going to. But I also want to throw out maybe a challenge, maybe a cautionary note to ourselves, those of us who should know what we're doing, the initiated, those who've done some family history. And that is about the future and that younger generation. But more importantly, those precious family archives that are unique to us, perhaps not even about our parents or grandparents, but ourselves and the stories we create about our lives. It's a sobering thought, thinking about some of those sort of global events, that there isn't a primary school child alive, and very soon there won't be any secondary school children in the UK who finish at 18 who will be alive when 9-11 struck and in many ways defined the last 20 years or so. That's now in our memories, and our stories, and our newspapers. And they come to us and ask questions. Um, I was asked by my nine-year-old if I could remember the war, um, <laughs> which was bad enough. Then I realized she was doing the First World War, which was quite <laughs> But 
we are living archives. Our memories and experiences are interesting. We can reach out to them, but we need to be capturing our own lives, our own stories. How many people here in this room write letters, not e-letters, but write physical letters, pen, paper, envelope, stamp, postbox? See? A few, uh, so I should do it on a regular basis once a week to friends and family. <laughs> One. Fabulous. Because that's how our ancestors communicate. This is where this stash of information come. We now live in a digital age where we use these. What's this? Everyone says phone. Uh, it's a personal um, digital archive. Because it captures my posts on social media. It captures the photographs I take. Photographs, that's an interesting thing. They're all on there and in the cloud. But they've all got this information, this metadata. It will be geo-stamped, so I know exactly where it was that that photo was taken. It will also have a time and date stamp, so we know when. And with face recognition, and if you put it on different places, it will then show who else it's connected to. So we're gathering through these little bits of tech a whole new digital personal archive, which, as we know, is ours and no one else's. Mm. <laughs> but I think the point there is that it is not self-indulgent navel-gazing. That's the paradox. We live in a digital age, and yet, where is our personal information? Where are our stories? We have to make the effort to record them, to write them, to share them. Because if we don't, who's going to do that? Or rather, more importantly, who will be doing it on our behalf? Thank you very much. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for tuning in. The Heritage Talks podcast is produced regularly for your education and enjoyment. Talk notes are found on the Talks page at soundcloud.com. Come back whenever you like and feel free to add the podcast to your favourite RSS feed or iTunes. All links are in the talk notes.